Thank you very much, Jim. Wish I had a voice like that. That deep baritone, I always love hearing it. We're going to put a photo up on the screen. I wonder if you can pick the venue here on the screen. Does anyone know where this is? Are you going to guess? MCG, I might have seen someone say. Yep. It's the Melbourne Cricket Ground. And on this day that the photo was taken, it is the highest recorded attendance. You can check out the MCG's website. And uh, actually, this is in 1959. It's not during a sporting event, a cricket or an AFL game. It's during the Billy Graham Crusades in 1959. And uh, I was reading a historian this week. He commented on this, and this is what he wrote about the crusade. The Southern Cross Crusade took in Australia and New Zealand... Nearly 3.25 million people attended meetings, 25% of the entire population of both nations. Of these, 150,000 decided for Christ. By the end of the second week of the Sydney Crusade, Graham observed that he had never witnessed such a response to the gospel. Spiritual hunger is the greatest I have ever known in my ministry, he said. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. The first thing seen by a visitor to the Billy Graham Centre, based for 50 years in Minneapolis, is a picture of the Melbourne Cricket Ground, packed with 143,000. Never have so many Australians been so interested in the gospel. Now, some might say that the 50s and the 60s and these crusades were really the glory days for Christianity in Australia. Millions of people were interested in hearing the gospel. Thousands upon thousands were responding to the gospel. These were the glory days, we might say. Now, so today, the situation couldn't be more different. Stephen McAlpine, in a book that won Australian Christian Book of the Year last year, he, he writes about our situation today. This is what he says. Only a few generations ago, Christianity was the good guy. Christian morality was assumed and passed mainly unchallenged. Then something changed. Christianity is no longer an option. It's a problem. The number of those professing faith has fallen dramatically. The number of those who reject the faith they held until their late teens has risen dramatically. We're on the wrong side of history, the wrong side of so many issues and conversations. Now that's quite a contrast, isn't it? The Billy Graham Crusades, the 50s and 60s, millions of people interested in the gospel. And now it feels like today, almost like one gospel conversation with someone is so difficult. It feels like the glory days are just so far behind us. And sometimes it might even make us feel, as Christians or as a church, like our work is futile, like it's pointless, like we're not getting anywhere, we're worse off than we were, and Christianity is declining, so what's the point? Well, the reason I bring this up is because that's exactly what Haggai's audience were feeling in chapter 2. They were, they were doing God's work, but they were thinking, what's the point in the work we're doing? It's nothing compared to the glory days. We're looking at Haggai 2 verses 1 to 9 because we're in a series right now called First Things First, the message of Haggai. And we're going to look at four weeks in this little prophetic book in the Old Testament. Last week we began in chapter 1 and we saw that at this point in Israel's history, so they'd built this amazing temple under Solomon, it had been destroyed by the Babylonians, the people of Judah were taken into exile to Babylon, spent 70 years there. Eventually, they came back to Jerusalem. They started rebuilding as God wanted them to, but the building work came to a halt. And it, was, it stopped for 10 years until God raised up Haggai 
and spoke to his people and, and got them going again. So in chapter one, God raises up Haggai. He speaks to the people. He says, it's not right for you to be building your own homes while my house is lying in ruins, the temple. And he says, it's not benefiting you anyway. And he speaks to them. He convicts them, confronts them. And there's this amazing revival. The people are, are cut to the heart. They respond. They, they give their awe to God and they begin building again. Now, as we come into chapter two, it's a month into the work. It's hard work. They're a month in and they're beginning to lose steam. They're beginning to lose gusto. And they're beginning to feel like the work isn't really worth it, like it's futile. And the reason we really, really want to listen to what God says in this chapter is because what He says produces an amazing response in the people. They wanted to give up after one month, but after He speaks to them, they get back to the work for another four and a half years until it's completed. God provides the encouragement and the strength and the power that they need to devote themselves to, the, to God's work in what seemed like a futile situation. And so for us in Australia, where we feel some of those feelings at times, we feel like Christianity is declining, we need to hear what God says in Haggai chapter 2. We need God's encouragement and His power to continue to devote ourselves to Him and His kingdom. So let's listen in this morning, and we're going to break up this passage into three sections. In the first section, we see a discouraged people, verses 1 to 3, a discouraged people. I'll just remind us of what verse 3 said. So God spoke to them and He said, Who is left among you who saw this house, the temple, in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem to you like nothing by comparison? And so God is speaking to the people and there were people among them who would have been old enough to remember what Solomon's temple looked like when they were a child. They had these childhood memories of this incredible temple before it was destroyed by the Babylonians. And when they fast forwarded to this date and they're starting to rebuild from the rubble, they look at what they're rebuilding compared to Solomon's temple and they think it's so pitiful, it's almost like nothing compared to what it once was. It's so discouraging. that It's, it's embarrassing. And in the ancient worldview, if you were thinking about the power of your God, sometimes, this is the temptation at least for the Israelites to do, rather than trusting in what God's Word says or what He says about Himself, the temptation can be to look at your own national life and your political life and think, that's how powerful our God is. The temptation could be to look back to Babylon and think, the city was so impressive, the temple was so impressive, Persians' armies were so powerful. Their gods almost seem like they're stronger and more real. Us, we're supposed to be the people of the one true God and we have this rubble that we're building. It's, it's so pitiful, it's so embarrassing. The temptation might have been to fear and think they're not really on the wrong side or that God isn't with them anymore. It, it just felt futile. And so in the next two sections, we're going to see God's solution to this feeling. We're going to see how He deals with this under the next two headings. So first, we've looked at a discouraged people. Second, we see a warrior God, verses 4 to 5. This is what God says to them. Even so, be strong, Zerubbabel. This is the Lord's declaration. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Work, for I am with you, the declaration of the Lord of armies. This is the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit is present among you. Don't be afraid. So God does three things here. God reminds them of who He is. God reminds them He is present. And God commands them to get to work. 
He reminds us of who he is, that he's present, and then he commands them. So we're just going to look at those three things together. First of all, God reminds them of who he is. Notice how many times he repeats his name in the passage. So I'll underline it for you on the screen. This is the Lord's declaration. This is the Lord's declaration, the declaration of the Lord of armies. One scholar who was really critical was like, oh, this must have been some sort of scribal error, and they kept writing the name down. It's so redundant. But that's not true. What the people needed was to be reminded, to have it drilled into their hearts, who their God was. And so the Lord of armies, let's take, take a look at that for a moment, just understand what that tells us about God. In your Bible, it might be translated the Lord of hosts. That's where I've most commonly seen it translated as. It might be Lord Almighty. The Lord of armies really describes God's role as the warrior God, as the general of heaven's armies, as the commander-in-chief of the divine forces. It reminds us that our God is a warrior, that he's strong, that he's mighty, that he's all-powerful. It's important to know this about God as well, because we just spent the Advent, the Christmas season, thinking about the gentle and lowly heart of Jesus, didn't we? And I would argue maybe that's even more emphasized in the Bible. But we want to know all of who God is. And in this moment, the people, in their discouragement, their feelings of futility, they didn't so much need to know the gentleness of God. They needed to know about the power of God. They needed to know about the might of God. Think about it this way. If you were enlisted into the Australian army, conscripted because we're involved in a war, you're trained up, you're sent out with a squad to the front line, who do you want leading your group? You probably want someone who's a battle-hardened war veteran, a, a strong soldier, someone with courage, someone with bravery. Now, it's an added bonus if they're kind in their hearts as well, they're a loving person, but what you really need when you're going out to the front lines is someone with strength and bravery and skill and courage. That's what's probably going to reassure you more in that moment. And this is what God's people needed in their intimidation, looking at the kingdoms around them, in their feelings of futility and weakness. They needed to know about the power of their God. But they didn't just need to know about who God is. They needed something more than that. They needed to know that God was still present, that he was still among them. And so let's look at that. God reminds them he is present. Generally speaking, in the ancient world, if your temple was destroyed, the God who lived there wasn't around anymore. They'd left. And so it could be tempting for the Israelites to think like that. But God had already told them multiple times in the Bible that even though he'd asked them to build a temple, it couldn't contain him. He was the creator of heaven and earth. And he wanted to come alongside them in this moment and remind them, hey, I'm not waiting for four and a half years until you get this thing rebuilt to come back. I'm with you now. Listen to what he says in verses 4 to 5. He says, For I am with you, the declaration of the Lord of armies. This is the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit is present among you. He wanted them to know that he was with them in the rubble. He was with them when they were weak and pitiful. He, he, he was with them in their embarrassment. He wasn't waiting for them to get everything together first. He wasn't waiting even for their obedience first. He'd come along and he said, I am with you. Literally, when he says, my spirit is present among you, in the, in the original Hebrew, he's saying, my spirit is standing among you. It's this sense of his spirit remains. His spirit is not moving away. It's not leaving. He's with them. He's standing with them. This is what they needed to know. 
He'd already actually said this in chapter one. He'd already said to them, I'm with you. But they needed to be reminded again. They were tempted to believe that God had forsaken them, that he'd left them. They'd had years of hard drought. The temple was unimpressive. And so they needed this reminder. I think it's interesting to note that that was God's solution to their discouragement. Because he could have clicked clicked his fingers and just created the temple again. He could have clicked his fingers and just given them power again. But instead, what the people needed was to be reminded of who God is and that he's present with them. And I think about times in my life, sometimes I'm praying and I'm thinking, God, if you, if you could just do this, I'll feel better. I feel really distressed about something. I'm praying, okay, please change this situation. But sometimes God doesn't even change it. It's just a matter of just having this awareness opened up about who he is again, that he's with me, that all of a sudden I feel at peace. I feel okay, and the situation hasn't even changed. I just need to be reminded of who God is. And sometimes that's what we need. That's what we need to hear. Some Christian leaders are saying that it's going to get worse for Christianity in Australia, that the culture is going to get more post-Christian and more hostile to Christians. And let me just quickly note at this point that I'm not trying to frame the culture as the enemy, because in Ephesians 6, it says, we don't fight against human beings, we fight against the spiritual forces of evil. So I just want to make sure we're clear on that. My point is rather, it feels like Sometimes Satan's doing a good job of turning Australians away from Christ. So as a church in this difficult environment, what will sustain us and help us to diligently devote ourselves to God's work for the next 5, 10, 20 years? We need to know who our God is and that He is present with us. He is the Lord of armies. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the Almighty One. He is the Commander-in-Chief of Heaven's Angels. He is with us in this work. What about more personally? Maybe there's something in your life that intimidates you or you just feel like just despair when you think about it. There's something in you that you think will never change, an anger that you just have to live with, a lust that you just have to live with, a sin issue, a struggle, an addiction, whatever it might be. What if God wanted to say to you today, I'm the Lord of armies. I'm the Lord of hosts. This is nothing before me. Let's pick a fight with your sin. Let me come alongside you and remind you, I am with you in this. What if you receive that from God today? Our God is an almighty God and He is with us, especially when we devote ourselves to those things He's called us to do. It's only as we remember who God is and His presence with us that we can find the strength to obey His commands. So God reminds them of who He is. He reminds them He is present and He commands them. He commands them. So He issues five commands in verses 4 to 5, which I've underlined for us. He says, even so, be strong. Zerubbabel, who is almost could have been king, but he's the governor. Be strong to the priest. So those are the two main leaders there. And be strong to all the people. So he says, be strong, and he says, work, and don't be afraid. The, the Lord of armies commands his people to get up, to throw off their despair, to be brave, and to get to work. And this is what God would say to us today, too, when we're feeling discouraged about the kingdom work he has called us to. We have God in our corner. We, we, haven't, we can't lose in the end. The future is fixed 
and filled with glory. And in fact, that's what, where God turns next. He reminds his people of the future. He gives them a promise for the future to give them confidence and strength in the present. So we've seen a discouraged people. We've looked at a warrior God, and now we look at a future glory in verses 6 to 9. Verses 6 to 9, it says, For the Lord of armies says this, Once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of armies. The silver and gold belong to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. The final glory of this house will be greater than the first, says the Lord of armies. I will provide peace in this place. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. So God's essentially saying to his people, there's going to be a cosmic shakeup. And he's going to turn the nations upside down, as it were, and shake the chains from their pockets. That the treasures are going to come falling out, and they're going to bring their treasures, and it's going to fill this temple, and it's going to be more glorious than it has ever been. And so the people must have thought, wow, this is great. It's just around the corner. Great days are ahead of us, and they devoted themselves to the work expecting this to happen. But they never actually saw this promise fulfilled in their lifetime. Think about that for a moment. They were given this promise, and it wasn't fulfilled in their generation or in their lifetime. God's plans and purposes and promises are so much grander and larger than our little lives on this earth. He cares about us, but His plans are greater. And God may choose that we are not the ones to see the exciting results of our obedience. And we just need to be okay with that. We need to surrender that to God. It was hundreds of years before their pitiful little temple ever became something greater. And it almost seemed like Haggai's prophecy was going to be fulfilled from about 20 BC. That's about 20 years or so before Jesus was born. Herod the Great came along and started renovating this temple. He started refurbishing it, adding it, adding to it, extending it. And, and he, he was working on this temple for 80 years, from about 20 BC till it was finished in 60 BC. And he died before getting to see it completed. And the renovations he was conducting in the temple were so extensive, so impressive, that the temple was actually the largest building site in the ancient world at that time. So the people must have been getting excited. They must have thought, look at our temple, this is incredible. Actually, that's what some of the disciples said to Jesus during his ministry. When they were visiting Jerusalem at one stage, they pointed to the temple and they said to Jesus, look at this, look how great this is, look how grand this is. But Jesus replied to them, do you see all these things? Truly, I tell you, not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. Their minds must have just gone into a spin in this moment. What? Isn't this the final glory of this temple meant to be even greater than the former glory of Solomon's temple? What, what do you mean that this, this great thing that Herod's building is, is going to be destroyed, which happened in AD 70, 10 years after it was completed? What do you mean, Jesus? Well, remember, I said last week that Jesus told us he is the true temple. The, the physical temple was only ever a temporary sign pointing forward to the true temple. Remember, the temple is where God's presence resides. How much more in Jesus, God incarnate, God in the flesh. That's where we encounter God's presence now. That the temple was where sacrifice was made. How much more was that fulfilled in Jesus, who gave himself as a sacrifice at the cross? 
Jesus is the greater and the truer temple. And when he began his ministry in Israel, he kept announcing the kingdom of heaven has come near. And in Matthew's gospel, that was one of his favorite ways about talking about the kingdom of God. He kept calling it the kingdom of heaven. It, it seems like he was trying to correct the people's views. This is a heavenly kingdom I'm building. I'm not building an earthly, political, military kingdom. It's going to overthrow Caesar and the Romans. I'm building a heavenly kingdom. He, he was trying to correct this view all throughout his ministry. And this is why Haggai chapter 2 actually gets picked up and quoted towards the end of the Bible in the book of Hebrews. And here's how it's used there in chapter 12 of Hebrews. And in verse 26, they actually quote straight from Haggai, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And the Hebrew writer explains it for us. This expression, yet once more, indicates the removal of what can be shaken, that is, created things, you know, human, earthly things, so that what is not shaken might remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom, a heavenly kingdom, that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. So the writer of Hebrews is helping us to understand how the promise in Haggai chapter 2 works. He's showing that the final glory Haggai was talking about was not referring to a physical temple. He was talking about Jesus and his people. In the New Testament, it says that we, remember last week I said Jesus is the true temple, and it talks about how in this kind of picture language that we're being built into this temple. We're like stones being built into the spiritual temple with Jesus as the cornerstone, with the true temple. And the final glory of us in the presence of God and the new creation is going to be far more incredible than the physical temple of Solomon. When Haggai said that the world will, world will be shaken up, it will shake the nations, he, he wasn't referring to the nation of Israel gaining victory over the Romans in the first century, which didn't happen. He was referring to the end of the age, when Jesus comes again to judge and to shake the nations. And only those who have trusted in him and, and put their faith in him will enter into this unshakable kingdom he will finally consummate this is why the final chapters of revelation speak of the end of the age like this they kind of pick up on the idea of haggai chapter 2 they say verse 26 they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it into the new jerusalem which is another picture way of speaking about god's people the church Remember how, God's, how Haggai said, I will shake all the nations so the treasures of all the nations will come and I'll fill this house with glory? Well, this is what's happening in Revelation 21. You see, when Jesus will return, he'll come as our warrior king. He'll end all opposition. He'll do perfect justice. He'll right every wrong. He'll turn things right side up again. He'll crush the head of Satan. He'll throw death into hell. He'll end all suffering. He'll wipe away every tear. That's the future that Haggai's referring to, and that is the future of all of God's people who put their faith and their trust in Him. This is the future that Haggai was reminding his people of. And church, this is our future. No matter how far away it remains, that day is coming. It is fixed. And that means our work for Christ is never wasted. Our work for Christ is never futile because God is fighting with us and future glory awaits us. That's the message I want to leave you with today. Our work for Christ is never futile because God is fighting with us and future glory awaits us.
So let me just ask you as we land this morning, are you devoting yourself to God's work? Are you seeking His kingdom in your life, in your workplace, in your family? If you haven't, it might be time to get to work because this is the kind of work that will never be wasted. It will last for eternity. What about, are you feeling like Christianity is doomed to die out in Australia? Are you feeling a bit gloomy about Christianity in Australia? Well, God would remind you of who He is and tell you to keep praying and serving and sharing and not to be discouraged, to be reminded that He is the Lord of armies and He's present with you and He's not intimidated. Wouldn't it be amazing if we as a church just gave ourselves to God's work, to His glory in our generation? We might not see the fruit in our lifetime, and that's okay. We will see the fruit in the age to come. And we'll have all eternity to enjoy what God's done. Let's pray together. Jesus, we just give ourselves to you this morning. We thank you for who you are. We we can't put you in a box, Jesus. You are gentle and lowly and compassionate. And yet you are a warrior. And you are strong and mighty and able to carry out justice. And we pray that you would encourage us with who you are. We pray that you would encourage us with your presence among us. We pray that you would encourage us with the future glory that awaits. That nothing that we do for you is futile in this world because your kingdom will come in all its fullness one day and so Lord we just want to honour you in this place we ask that you'd use us as your people we ask that you'd direct each one of us how do you want us involved in your work please speak to us and lead us by your spirit we pray and ask this for your glory in Jesus name